Thanks, Sarge. And if you guys have your Bibles, I hope you do. Turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Last week, we just talked about the times and the seasons for everything. This week, we're going to pick up in Ecclesiastes 3, 16, and I'm going to go just through the first three verses in chapter 4. And let's go ahead and, and stand and read this passage just from beginning to end. If you guys have your Bibles, you don't mind. If you're able to, please stand out of uh, honor and respect for God's Word this morning. And I'm going to start Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 16. It says, Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. In the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. And I said in my heart, with regard to the children of men, that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of men is what happens to the beasts, and it is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. Verse 20. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. And who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward, and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. And so I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Chapter 4, verse 1. And again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the, I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both, is he who has not been yet and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Let's pray together. Father heaven, again, we ask for just attentiveness um, as we study and look at your word this morning. We thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy to us, God. We pray that you would convict us where we need conviction, that you would encourage us where we need encouragement, that uh, our time of looking at your word this morning will cause us to be extremely thankful for who you are. You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You rule and sit above all things, God, and we can fully trust in you, and we thank you for that truth. We ask that you'd bless us for this next hour now. Uh, Keep us alert and attentive to what you would have us to know through your word. And it's the name of your Son and by your Spirit we pray. Amen. Be seated. Christians have always believed in a judgment day. Acts 17, verse 31. God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. Therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive his praise from God Uh, Interesting phrase there at the end of verse 5. Even one of the earliest ecumenical creeds that universally, uh, we would say evangelical churches adopt, the Apostles' Creed, talks about the judgment, the judgment day and the final judgment of the Lord. At the end of the section regarding Jesus, his person and his work, it says, He, speaking of Jesus, ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and from there he will come to judge the living and the dead. Some of you guys remember he will judge the quick in the dead. 
So even if you're really fast, he's still going to judge you, all right? <laughs> old, uh, old language, all those creeds talk about the judgment of God in a final judgment day. But one of the best verses on God's judgment, I feel like, is, is John 12. And the reason why I want to highlight this one is because it, it juxtaposes two concepts that I want to talk about after I read these verses. Uh, John 12, verse 46 Jesus says, I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on that last day. And again, it's it's just really interesting how this verse in John 12 juxtaposes the idea of God as light and God as judge. One of my favorite commentaries said, without divine judgment, humanity is in total darkness without it. Modern people have a a very hard time with the judgment of God and the justice of God or even this idea that there could be a final judgment day for all people. Modern people can't stand the idea of a judgment day. They say, my God is not a a judging God, smite me, almighty smiter. They say, my God is a loving God. He accepts me the way that I am. He doesn't care to judge, he just cares to love and to show compassion and kindness. Remember when you were a, a kid on the playground and there was always that other kid who was, kinda had the voice of authority in every situation, say, um, man, I'm not gonna pick Harold for my kickball team because he's the worst kickball kicker on the planet and he can't catch a ball in the outfield to save his life. And Harold mounds back up against me and he says, oh yeah, says who? You guys remember how that goes on the playground? Oh yeah, yeah, says who? Says me, because I'm the final judge and I'm gonna determine everything that is right and wrong in any given situation. In, uh, in Kansas, when we were um, in ministry there, I read a book called A Reason for God, and it's one of the greatest apologetic books that I've read. It defends the, the resurrection, the person, and the work of Christ, and his, his character, the historicity of the Gospels, and what Jesus did through the miracles. And there's a section in there that is quoted by the author that has forever changed my perspective on the judgment of God and on this concept of a final judgment day. This is a long quote. I have it on the screens for you. I want you to to read it along with me. This is from a, a play by Arthur Miller, and one of the characters says this. It says, for many years, I looked at life like a case at law. It was a series of proofs When you're young, you prove how brave you are, or smart. Then later on in life, what a good lover you are. And then even as you get older, what a good father you are. And finally, you try to prove how wise or how powerful you are. But underlying it all, I see now that there was a presumption that every person is moving on an upward path towards some elevation. I don't know what it was. All I know is I would be justified or even condemned based on what I have done. 
a verdict anyway. I think now that my disaster really began when I looked up one day and the bench was empty. No judge in sight. All that remained was the endless argument with oneself and this pointless litigation of existence before an empty bench, which, of course, is another way of saying despair. It's really interesting what this character is saying. First, he says that naturally and instinctively, all of us live by a standard. All of us make choices and decisions based on what we think is right and what we think is wrong. Naturally, we tend to do this. Now, nobody agrees on what that standard should be or even uh, could be in many respects. But nonetheless, all of us instinctively have something that we make our choices by and a standard which we live by. But second, Miller says that if there is no final judge, all that's left is endless litigation and despair. And here's what he means by that. If there's no agreed standard, if there's no final canon, if there's nothing to measure everything else against, who's to say what's right and ultimately what's wrong? From one person's vantage point, killing babies is wrong. From another person's vantage point, having an abortion is their right to do that. And we're gonna go back and forth on that issue in this endless dialogue, each position taking their stance, making their defenses for what they think is ultimately right. And if there is no one to finally decide those truthful issues, those hard concepts that we all go through in life, how can we have any meaning in life whatsoever? If there's no one to finally decide, what would be the reason for making any decision in the first place? Why would you be swayed to go in one direction versus another direction? Or think about one idea versus another idea as you walk through and, and make your choices? Today, the modern mentality is programmed to judge for yourself. Nobody needs to tell me or you, Jim Kaufman, what you need to do. You just need to decide for yourself, and everything is going to be okay. After all, you've got to accept the responsibility for your decisions. Most people think a, a judgment day, this ancient thought, is a, um, no longer useful for today. It's ridiculous. You're going to tell me at the end of, the, end of all times that there's going to be one final judge that we all approach on Judgment Day? You still believe in that ancient myth and those outdated ideas? Ultimately, the only road that leads to, if we are honest, is despair, hopelessness. Life is meaningless. Why would, you, why would it matter what anybody else does in life at all? Enter the preacher. Right. Look down at Ecclesiastes 3 and, and go back to verse 16. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there is wickedness, in the place of righteousness, even there is wickedness. And I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. Now, before we get too far into this uh, passage, just a reminder on where we've been in the book of Ecclesiastes, drawing us to chapter three. We've, we've transitioned now to a brand new section in the book. <clears throat> As Ecclesiastes opened, we had a prologue. 
In chapter one, verses one through 11, we were introduced to a lot of the major themes and the ideas, and what we saw as the book opened was a lot of cycles in life. Things seem to continue as they have always continued throughout time. It is the same old, same old every single day. We were introduced to the major themes in Ecclesiastes as this book opened up. In chapter one, verse 12 through 226, we began to read about the preacher's, Kohelet's, ultimate quest for meaning. And Kohelet put down his, uh, we would say, his, his scepter and his, his throne. He stepped aside and he put on the hat of the philosopher, of the scientist. We saw him as a moral man, trying to find meaning in life through living a moral life before others. This section is distinct in chapter one and, and through chapter two in that there's a lot of first-person singular pronouns. This is Solomon's ultimate quest. We see more about him, I, me, and my pronouns in that section of the book of Ecclesiastes than anywhere else. Finally now, we've transitioned to chapter three where the quest for meaning continues. This is gonna be a little bit more general. We're gonna see a lot of proverbs, better is blank than blank as we go through the rest of the book, but yet, The preacher is still on this quest. He's still on this quest for meaning to figure out if there is any true meaning in life. And we see in this section the difficulty of finding meaning in a fallen world, in a world that is riddled with pain and sin. Because we live in a fallen world, there are massive problems. Justice and injustice, oppression, corrupt judges. In a world where there is no truth, no ultimate standard of judgment, how can anyone find any meaning in life whatsoever? That is the question that we need to ask as we plow into these verses this morning. The first thing I want to talk about is in Ecclesiastes 3. If there is no judgment day, then there's no hope and life has no meaning. If there is no divine justice, then there is absolutely no hope and life has no meaning whatsoever. Verse 16 begins this way. Moreover, I saw under the sun. Now, ESV has moreover. The New American Standard says, uh, furthermore, this is a marker in Hebrew. You know that a new section now, uh, the preacher is gonna bring something to light that is different than what he has talked about before. A new discovery has been made in his walking through life, and he is shifting his thoughts. And it says, I saw under the sun. And remember, we talked about that phrase, under the sun, and it is very distinct from things that are over or past the sun. We would say things in the heavenly places. The preacher is taking his cues. He is doing his research through a very secular perspective here. Throughout Ecclesiastes, under the sun describes the futility and meaningless of life lived for the self and the moment without regard to the person and work of God at all. This phrase, under the sun, throughout Ecclesiastes, describes the futility and the meaninglessness of life lived for the self and for the moment without regard to the person or the work or the ways of God. And you have to keep that in mind as we go through the rest of this passage. In verse 16, the preacher or the philosopher, Solomon, Kohelet, he sees something. All right? And see is a past tense of a Hebrew word that means observed. He put it through the magnifying glass. He put it into an experiment. This is another one of Solomon's reflections, 
that he himself is walking through and exploring in a very autobiographical context. The issue he notices is something that takes him through all the rest of the chapter and all the rest of the section of Ecclesiastes, but it is also a hot ticket item for our culture and our society today. Justice in the land, judgment in the law courts. Verse 16, in the place where you expect to find justice, the law courts, the place that is supposed to render justice is actually unjust. And Solomon notices the injustice that is happening in those contexts. That's okay. We understand from earlier in chapter three, there's a time for everything. So there's a time to be just. There's a time to live through injustices. Certainly there is, there has to be a time for justice. God ordained a season for all things in life. There's a time to live, there's a time to die, there's a plant, time to plant, there's a time to pluck up. Instead of being a time to judge, maybe this is a time of, of testing for us. Look down at verse 18. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. It's been, been thought that there is one thing that distinguishes human beings from every living, living thing on the face of the earth. Um, Rene Descartes had the famous slogan, I think, therefore I am. And he describes coming out of the Enlightenment that the one thing about human beings that makes us distinct from everything else that lives and breathes and dies on the planet Earth is that we have reason. We have rationality. We can think through concepts, ideas, and put them into practice. Here, this is obviously distinct from the animals and the animal kingdom, but, but there's, there's other distinctions that would, we would draw out. If we go back to Genesis 1 and 2, we could talk about how, how God has formed and shaped and created all of the world and how each parts of his creation are distinct from other parts. But the preacher's not privy to Old Testament creation theology here. Remember, he's taking his view from under the sun. From a naturalist or a secular view, there's more commonality between humans and the animal kingdom. There's more similarities than there are actually differences. Namely, both of them die. Both of them are, are left with carcasses on this earth to decay. If some people want to dismiss the idea of God as creator, that's fine. In the secular world, you're going to find that a lot. But to dismiss the idea of death as a curse, that is a universal. Everybody must face this thought right on. People live, people die. Animals live and animals die. Look down at verse 19. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. Man has no advantage over the beasts, for all of it is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to the dust they shall return. You ever sing that song? Ashes to ashes, we all fall down. It's good creation curse theology. There's a, a group of Trappist monks. They're known for their spiritual disciplines, and, 
and living these um, secluded lives, just having impeccable discipline in their private lives. Live very simple lives, and one of their daily disciplines every single day is they go to the place of the graveyards outside of their monasteries. There is a specific place that is dedicated to burying the dead, and every single day at some point in time during the day, these Trappist monks, they walk to the graveyard, they see there an open grave, and they peer over the edge of it. In silence, they walk back to the monastery. Each day is a a recollection, focuses them to, to face the reality of their mortality. One day, their bodies will be in that grave. As soon as one of them dies, all the other monks take the dirt, they cover that body up, and they begin to dig the next empty grave, just day in and day out, day in and day out. They do this ritual over and over again to remind them of their mortality. Solomon looks out in a fallen world and he sees death of beasts and humans alike. In a purely secular viewpoint, verse 21 is his conclusion. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of beasts goes down to the earth. If people simply die, many of which won't be judged before they die, how can there be any hope of meaning in life? How can we find any significance in judgment? People come and go without being judged. Verse 22, So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot, who can bring him to see what will be after him. If justice cannot be found in the present, verse 16, or in the future, verse 19, then there is absolutely no reason why we as human beings shouldn't take advantage of every opportunity to enjoy life now in all of its pleasures and totally give ourselves over to a life of hedonism and enjoyment and what's in it for me. The here and the now. Listen, this is what Solomon is saying. If the places of justice are unjust, if there's no judgment that is observable in our days, why aren't we all hopeless and despairing? We of all people are to be pitied. We should be the most hopeless and despairing people ever if there's no justice and there's no judgment day. We should be utterly destitute and it would be observable. I think now that my disaster really began when I looked up one day and the bench was empty. There was no judge in sight. It gets worse. If there's no justice, there's no hope, and life has no meaning. Number two, if there's no justice, there's no comfort either. There's no reason why we should have any comfort in this life. Look down at Ecclesiastes 4, verse 1. Again, I saw all the oppression that is done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought of the dead who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive, but better than both is he who has not yet been and has not yet seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. David Gibson put it this way in his commentary on Ecclesiastes, in every age and in every part, the world is full to the brim with love of self and hatred of others. 
In every age and in every part, the world is full to the brim with love of self and hatred of others. The preacher sounds like the prophets in the Old Testament in the first few verses of chapter four. He sounds like Amos crying out for justice to the poor, to the oppressed, the orphan, and to the widow. He sounds like Ezekiel crying out to heal the broken, to bring along those who are destitute and don't have. Notice in verse one, the the repetition of this phrase, there is no one to comfort them. Twice, there is no one to comfort them. The the Hebrew word for comfort in Hebrew is nacham. It's it's the word for the womb of a mother. There is no comfort for the oppressed. But the way this verse is written, it's, it's written to grab our attention in verse one. There's there's a stop sign that is put there in Hebrew where we say, okay, listen now and pay attention to this. Behold, I saw again the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold. And any time you see that word in Hebrew, you stop. It's almost as if the preacher here is saying, if you haven't heard anything else, listen to this. What I'm about to say is extremely significant. Jesus would say, amen, amen, before continuing the statement. Truly, truly, verily, verily, I say to you, listen up and pay attention to what I'm about to say. This is so critical. Behold the tears of the oppressed. In in Hebrew, uh, tears there is actually singular. It's not plural. It's used in a collective sense, much like you would see in the prophets. You see this word in the, the context of lamentations, of calamity, and of distress, of distress. And syntactically, tears function as a metonymy for association, for weeping. Behold the weeping of the oppressed, the great sadness and the sorrow of the oppressed. The preacher puts, uh, puts himself in the same group as Elijah, Job, Jonah. Remember Elijah who wished for the day of his death on the shores, on the, um, the hills of Mount Carmel, 1 Kings 19, verse 4. Jonah in chapter four, verse three, as the plant that grew above him withered away, waiting to see what would happen to Nineveh. I wish I was dead, instead of being here right at this moment. Job, of course, is the most, probably most memorable to you. May the day of my birth perish, Job said. And the night, it was said, a baby is born. That day may it turn into darkness. May God above not care about it. May no light shine upon it. Entire people groups have, have suffered severe oppression throughout the history, history of our world. The preacher says, if there is oppression without justice, there is absolutely no comfort in this world. It would be better for those people if they weren't even born. So, so here's, here's what we've said. Because this is a probably more pertinent and applicable passage for our world and our time than we might have otherwise thought. If there is no justice, if there is no judgment day, then there's ultimately no hope, and you can't have any meaning in life whatsoever. If there is no justice, if there is no judgment day, then there's no comfort. Who knows what can be done? Everything is right in everybody's own eye. It doesn't really matter. But if there is justice, if there is a judgment day, then guess what? There's no hope also. Because you and I will stand before an all-righteous, perfect, holy, just God. 
and who could stand under the perfect judgment of God? Who could stand before an all-holy God and think that they, apart from Christ, would receive comfort, mercy, and forgiveness? Um, One of my favorite theologians, he put it this way, and I think this is so good. He says, for the trouble is that one part of us is on God's side and really agrees with his disapproval of human greed, trickery, and exploitation. We may want him to make an exception in our own case, to let us, us off this one time. But you, at bottom, that unless the power behind the world really and unalterably detest that sort of behavior, then he cannot be good, and he cannot be just. On the other hand, we know that if there does exist an absolute goodness and a perfect just judge, it must hate most of what we do. And that's the terrible fix we are in. So what is it? You want perfect justice or don't you? Because if you do, that justice goes right through the heart of all of us. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, a great great quote about evil. The line through good and evil runs right through the heart of every single person. I want you to turn to uh, Romans 8. We'll be done in Ecclesiastes, and let's turn to Romans 8, verse 1. Romans 8, verse 1. Because of sin, all of us want justice. Life has no meaning without it. But because of us, because of sin, no one can stand perfect justice. All of us would die if we faced it. Romans 8, verse 1 says this. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The Apostle Paul when he penned Romans 8, he wrote that after talking a lot about the ministry in, of the cross in Romans 1 all the way through chapter 7. Therefore, to believers who understand who Christ is and what he has done for us on the cross, in chapter 8, finally, he comes to the point where he says, therefore, if you have trusted Christ, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, how, how can that be? If we want justice, but we can't stand the justice of God, if we are sinners, inseparably and unchangeably bad apart from divine grace and a work of the Holy Spirit upon our lives, how can we have no condemnation before an all-holy God? We ourselves are guilty and objects of his condemnation and wrath. And the truth of the gospel, here's what happens. Jesus says, I've, the statements in John 12 are, are extremely important. I have not come to judge the world, but I've come to save the world instead. And so, and so here's what happens, and I've often given this description to uh, people when I talk about the judgment of God. You know, when, when you, maybe we have lots of lawyers and, and 
Perhaps you have been in a courtroom at some point in time in your life. Whenever you walk into a courtroom, right in the, right in the front of the middle central aisle at the head of that room is a giant desk. Usually it's mahogany, this big wooden desk. And behind that desk sits a judge. And he's got a gavel and he pronounces judgments. And he makes his rules. And he declares a verdict. And every single, single time a judge will make a verdict. And the verdict against us, apart from Christ, is very simple. We are condemned. We are guilty. We have violated the holiness of God with our sinful actions and by being related to Adam. We come into this world sinners. That's why we die, all of us. When you look at that and you consider that in the picture of the gospel, here's what happens. God the Father sits behind the bench And as he picks up his condemnation and his verdict of guilty, he looks down and he sees a sinner that deserves nothing but death. But instead of making the verdict, he puts the gavel down, he takes his robe off, he steps aside from the bench and he comes down into the place of the guilty and the condemned. The father rules against his very own son, Jesus, and says, condemned. But because of what he's done for us on the cross, now the righteousness of God is granted to those who would simply trust and believe in Jesus Christ. That even though we are condemned, and even though we are guilty because of our own sin, we can have everlasting life, and we can have no condemnation before God because of what he has done for us on the cross. The only person who could justly judge us and condemn us didn't do it. And he put that judgment on his son Jesus instead. Without that, life has absolutely no meaning and you will remain in a hopeless context. Just live it up while you got it. Might as well enjoy life while it's here. But because of the gospel, and because of hope, and because of perfect justice that there is, through Christ, we can have hope. All of our decisions mean something. Life takes on a whole nother fabric in every action and every decision we know is going to ultimately be judged. We don't stand condemned before God, if we've trusted Christ, now we have life in the Spirit, and we can live as God intended us to live. He doesn't look down and see a sinner. He looks down and he sees his son, Jesus. This is the truth of the gospel, but apart from that, an empty bench is just despair and hopelessness. Folks, Ecclesiastes was written thousands of years ago to people who didn't believe in absolute truth. They had no concept of one just God that would pronounce his judgment on everything. We live in a context that believes that, same very, that very same thing today. People don't want a judgment day. Without it, they have absolutely no hope. No hope whatsoever. 
This is the truth of the gospel. This is the message that we bring to a fallen world. I want to encourage you to do so in Ecclesiastes. We're going to continue going in in chapter 4, and it's just going to get more and more relevant as we go. So please come back and and be a part of this sermon series. All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the truth of the gospel. We thank you. um, Thank you that in the ministry of Jesus coming to this earth to die for us, he didn't judge Instead, he gave his life as a ransom for many. I thank you for the truth of that, Lord. Help us to to believe it. Um, We pray that your Holy Spirit would work on the hearts of the individuals we come across who do not know the truth of this gospel message and who are living in a very hopeless, meaningless framework of life. Father, help us to ground all of our decisions in the truth of the gospel and the truth of a judgment day and the truth that there is real justice, divine justice. Lord, we ask this uh, to you, Father, through the Son and by the Spirit, for you three are the one true God, and there is no God besides you. Amen. Amen. Thanks to uh, Dave for a great beginning to our service here and that prayer. Uh, Appreciate you, and enjoy the rest of your Sunday, you guys. This is going to be a really great day. Put your feet up and rest, and hopefully we'll see you soon. Thanks so much.